Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 65. Today, we're peeling back the layers of a case that still sends shivers down the spines of true crime lovers. Gather around as we journey into the unsettling world of a man whose name has become synonymous with horror and derangement, Ed Gein. Often referred to as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Madman of Wisconsin, Gein's story is not for the faint of heart. Brace yourselves as we uncover the twisted mind behind one of the most infamous figures in true crime history. Ed Gein, a quiet and unassuming farmer, managed to transform his rural farmhouse into a house of horrors, a place where nightmares became reality. From ghastly grave robbing to unspeakable acts of necrophilia and murder, Gein's deeds shocked the nation. But what drove Gein to commit such heinous acts? Was it the isolated environment of Plainfield, Wisconsin, or were there deeper, darker forces at play within his psyche? In this episode, we'll dissect the enigma that is Ed Gein, separating fact from fiction and exploring the psychological landscape that gave rise to this real-life monster. So fasten your seatbelt and prepare to journey into the heart of darkness. This is Historical True Crime, and our exploration of the chilling tale of Ed Gein begins now. To understand the twisted mind of Ed Gein, we first have to peer into the shadows of his family and early life, a period that would lay the foundation for the horrors that would later unfold. Ed Gein's mother, Augusta, was born in 1878 and raised in Wisconsin as one of eight children in a family of German immigrants from Prussia. Her family, like many other old Lutherans, were part of a large-scale exodus from Prussia. It's noteworthy that the old Lutheran faith they practiced was far more conservative than the mainstream Lutheran faith. They held that every human being was sinful, both in their deeds and ideas. They claimed that immoral intentions were ingrained in human nature. They thus held the opinion that everyone deserved to burn in hell. Around the age of 22, on December 11, 1900, Augusta would tie the knot with George Philip Gein, a fellow German immigrant's child who had relocated to Hamburg, Wisconsin, along with his family. Augusta and George would welcome Henry George Gein, their first son, only two years later. Now, George would take on odd tasks, like carpentry, among others, but he had trouble sticking with anything for very long. This was mostly brought on by his battles with alcoholism. 
Meanwhile, Augusta managed a modest grocery store and made an effort to maintain order in their family home. But she eventually started to resent George. But her religious convictions would keep her from divorcing him, and her animosity only deepened. She soon came to have a strong dislike of men in general, and yearned to have a daughter. Augusta's wish would not be granted. Rather, she'd have a second son in 1906, Edward Theodore Gein. And Ed's worldview was gradually distorted by Augusta's obsessive protectiveness, as she didn't want her child to become the kind of man that she herself detested. Augusta would insist that their family leave the area, which she saw as a hub of immorality, and instead relocate to a remote farmhouse close to the Wisconsin rural community of Plainfield in 1915. To grasp the backdrop against which Ed Gein's early life unfolded, let's transport ourselves to the quaint town of Plainfield, Wisconsin, circa 1915. In this era, Plainfield would be a tight-knit community nestled within the serene landscapes of central Wisconsin, boasting a population of just a few hundred residents. The heart of Plainfield was its agrarian economy, with fertile farmland stretching as far as the eye could see. The air was thick with the scent of freshly tilled soil, and the hum of daily life revolved around the seasonal cycles of planting and harvesting. In 1915, Plainfield was a place where everyone knew their neighbors, and community bonds were the cornerstone of daily existence. Social gatherings, church events, and town fairs would serve as the focal points of communal interaction. The local general store a hub of activity, bustling with residents exchanging news, trading goods, and sharing the simple joys of rural life. Little did the residents know that beneath the veneer of rural tranquility, the seeds of a chilling tale were being sown, waiting to sprout into the dark legacy of Ed Gein. The only way that Ed and his brother could leave their farm was to go to the one-room local grade school, which only had around 12 students. Ed was not able to build any kind of lasting relationships with his classmates, who recalled him as uneasy around others and prone to strange bouts of laughter for no apparent reason. Furthermore, Ed was an easy target for bullies due to his speech impairment and lazy eye. But their home life wasn't much better. Augusta was never happy with her boys and would verbally abuse them, thinking they would end up failures like their father. The young men had only each other's company during their adolescence and early adulthood, remaining aloof from anybody outside of their homestead. According to Harvey for AllThat'sInteresting.com, Ed would finish the 8th grade and leave school at the age of 14 and he would grow more and more attached to his mother, Augusta, who consistently persisted in disparaging their father. Psychologists have speculated throughout the years that Ed in fact wished to be a woman just like his mother, since he thought all men were weak. Augusta would urge her sons to abstain from sexual relations as a gesture of their love and dedication, cautioning them that any kind of sexual intercourse would ultimately result in their damnation. In April 1940, Their father, George, would pass away due to pneumonia-related complications that resulted in fluid buildup in his lungs. Augusta would express very little grief about her husband's death, blaming it on his immoral and frail character and repeatedly saying that he had died and gone to hell. On May 16th, Ed and Henry were battling a brush fire on their farm that was getting dangerously near to their property. The two would break off in separate directions while trying to put out the fire, according to authorities but night would fall rapidly during the struggle, and Ed would soon lose sight of Henry. Ed allegedly called the police after the fire was out because he couldn't find Henry anywhere. 
The police immediately put together a search team, and when they arrived at the property, Ed surprisingly took them straight to the body of the missing Henry. There were some circumstances surrounding Henry's death that worried the police. For instance, Henry had bruises on his head and was laying on a section of unburned ground. Despite Henry being discovered in an unusual situation, authorities quickly ruled out foul play. Nobody could have imagined Shy Ed killing anyone, much less his own brother. Asphyxiation would be later listed as the cause of death by the county coroner. At this point, Ed simply needed his mother, who was the only surviving person he had. He would, however, have his mother to himself only for a very short period of time, because following several strokes, Augusta would pass away on December 29, 1945. Ed's world fell apart when his mother died. Ed had, as Harold Schechter put in his book Deviant, lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in the world. After his mother died, he stayed on the farm and survived on the minimal income he received from doing odd jobs. Ed would board up the rooms that his mother used most frequently, including the living room, parlor, and upstairs floor. He would keep them intact and pristine for years, treating them as a kind of shrine to her. His living quarters would be on the lower floor where he used the kitchen and a small room off it for sleeping. Following his mother's death, Ed would read anatomy books and pulp magazines for most of his free time. His living spaces were crammed with magazines covering shipwrecks, Nazis, and South Sea headhunters. Ed gained knowledge of the human body's anatomy, the process of shrinking skulls, and the excavation of corpses from tombs through his books. He developed an obsession with these strange tales and would frequently recount them to children that he would watch. Ed liked to read the local newspapers as well. The obituary section was his favorite. According to Bell and Bardsley for Crime Library, Ed would find out about the deaths of nearby women through the obituaries. He had never physically been with anyone of the, of the opposite sex, but he would visit their graves at night. Even though he later testified that he never had sex with any of the dead women he exhumed because they smelled too bad, he did enjoy taking their skin off and wearing it. He frequently daydreamed about being a woman since he was curious about what it felt like to have breasts and a vagina. And because of women's influence and power over men, women simply captivated him. Ed would gather a sizable collection of body parts, including a few preserved heads, and one day, a boy he occasionally babysat came over to Ed's house. Ed, he claimed, had shown him human heads that he had stored in his bedroom. Ed said the dried-out heads were headhunters' artifacts from the South Seas. And when the young boy told this story, it was simply written off as a product of his own imagination. But a little while later, Ed's farm was visited by two other young boys. And they said they had seen the mummified heads of women but at the time they dismissed this as a bizarre Halloween prop. But rumors would start to spread, and the majority of the town's residents were chatting amongst themselves about the weird items Ed was said to own. Wisconsin police would also notice a rise in missing people in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Four examples in particular puzzled authorities. The first was Georgia Weckler, an eight-year-old who vanished on May 1, 1947, after returning from school. A 10-square-mile area of Jefferson, Wisconsin, was searched by hundreds of people and police in an attempt to locate the young child. Unfortunately, Georgia would never be seen again. The next case, 
A young woman was babysitting when her father called the residence where she was watching a young girl and got no response. The girl's father became worried when he couldn't reach her by phone and would drive to the house to see her. No one would answer the door when he arrived. He glanced through a window and saw his daughter's glasses and one of her shoes on the ground. All of the windows and doors appeared locked when he attempted to enter the home. With one exception, a basement window at the back. And it was there where he would find bloodstains. Terrified, he broke into the house and saw evidence of a struggle. But despite a thorough search, the young woman Evelyn was not found. A few days later, next to a highway outside of La Crosse, authorities found bloody clothes that belonged to Evelyn, and people began to believe that the worst had happened. Two men, Victor and Ray, went to a bar in Plainfield, Wisconsin in November of 1952 to have a drink before going deer hunting. But after leaving the bar, they'd never be seen again, despite a massive search effort. Mary Hogan, a bar owner in Plainfield, would vanish from her place of business inexplicably during the winter of 1954. Blood would be found on the floor of the tavern that extended into the parking lot, which raised suspicions among the police of foul play. The fact that all these disappearances occurred in or near Plainfield, Wisconsin, is the only significant similarity between any of these incidents. Finally, Bernice Worden, a 58-year-old owner of a hardware business in Plainfield, would vanish early on November 16, 1957. Throughout that day, there weren't many customers at the hardware store. So when Worden's son, Deputy Sheriff Frank, arrived at the store around 5 p.m., he discovered bloodstains and that the cash register had been left open. Frank would inform detectives that Ed Gein had visited the store the night before his mother vanished and was scheduled to come back the following morning for a gallon of antifreeze. The final receipt that Warden wrote on the morning she disappeared was a sales slip for the antifreeze. The Washera County Sheriff's Department would search Ed's farm after he was taken into custody that evening. They would find Bernice hanging upside down by her legs with rope around her wrists and a crossbar at her ankles, dressed out like a deer. She had been shot by a 22 caliber rifle and mutilated after death. But they wouldn't just discover Bernice. They'd also discover several gory items that were all created by Ed. Skulls, human organs, and graphic furnishings such as chairs covered in human flesh, and lampshades fashioned from human faces were discovered by police. As he later revealed to authorities, Ed's intention was to build a skin suit, that would allow him to bring his deceased mother back to life. Ed was being questioned by detectives at the county jailhouse while excavations at the farm got underway. Initially, he'd deny any involvement in any of the murders. But after more than a day without saying anything, he started to tell the gruesome story of how he murdered Bernice and how he got the body parts that were discovered in his home. He would claim to have been in a disoriented state both before and during the murder and would have trouble recalling any details. Still, he remembered carrying Bernice's body to his pickup truck, removing cash from the register, and then returning to his home. He claimed to have taken the additional body parts from nearby graves when asked where they had come from. Except for Bernice, Ed swore he hadn't killed any of the people whose bodies had been discovered in his house. But ultimately, following days of relentless questioning, he did acknowledge killing Mary Hogan. Once more, he insisted he was in a trance at the time of the murder and unable to recall specifics of what had transpired. All he could remember was that he had shot her by mistake. 
Ed's farm would later yield another discovery that would call into question whether he had killed a third person. On the farm, skeletal remains were discovered on November 29th. And Victor Travis, who had vanished several years prior, was thought to be the deceased person whose body was found. It was sent right away to a criminal lab for analysis. But tests would reveal that the body was actually that of a middle-aged woman, another memento from the graveyard. Ed could not be linked by police to Victor's disappearance, or the disappearances of the other three who went missing in the Plainfield region years prior. Ed would only end up being held accountable for the deaths of Bernice and Mary. Following his arrest, Ed's attorney, William Belter, pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Ed had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and declared ineligible to stand trial in January 1958 and was committed to Wapoon, Wisconsin Central State Hospital. Ed's property and some of his other possessions were put up for sale not long after he was committed. Thousands of curious onlookers came to check out what items of Ed's were up for sale. His furniture, instruments, and car were among the items. Plainfield residents were furious. The community insisted that something be done to stop Ed's house from turning into a museum for the morbid. And early on March 20th, 1958, Ed's home caught on fire and would burn down swiftly. Passerbyers would watch in relief. Since the property had no discernible issues with its electrical wiring, police would assume that the fire was started by an arsonist. Despite a comprehensive inquiry by the authorities, no suspect was ever identified. The courts would ultimately determine that Ed was competent to face trial after he spent 10 years in the mental hospital where he was receiving treatment. And on January 22, 1968, the trial to decide whether Ed was guilty of Bernice Warden's murder or not due to insanity was underway. The trial itself would begin on November 7, 1968, and Ed had a lot of evidence against him. There was no jury, and the judge made his decision in only one week. Ed was found to have committed first-degree murder. However, since it was determined that he was insane at the time of the homicide, he would be ruled not guilty by reason of insanity and acquitted. He'd be brought back to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane shortly after trial, and Ed would spend the rest of his life there. Following a protracted battle with cancer, he would pass away on July 26, 1984, and he was laid to rest by his mother in Plainfield Cemetery, not far from the graves he had raided years before. But Ed's tale transcends true crime, seeping into popular culture. The Butcher of Plainfield has left a mark on literature, film, and even music, becoming an enduring symbol of horror and human depravity. In literature, Gaines' influence is unmistakable. Perhaps most notably, Robert Bloch drew inspiration from Ed for his iconic 1959 novel, Psycho. Bloch's Norman Bates, like Gein, blurs the line between sanity and madness, haunting readers with the unsettling notion that the most ordinary facade can conceal the most grotesque secrets. Hollywood, always eager to tap into the darkest corner of the human psyche, has immortalized Ed on the silver screen. Alfred Hitchcock's adaptation of Psycho in 1960 introduced the world to the chilling Bates Motel and the infamous shower scene, forever intertwining Gein's legacy with cinematic horror. Ed's story has also inspired a string of horror films, with titles like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs. These films amplify the terror, weaving fictional narratives that echo the real-life horrors of Ed's crimes. 
Beyond the silver screen, Ed's influence extends into the realm of music. Numerous artists from heavy metal bands to avant-garde performers have drawn inspiration from the dark allure of Ed Gein. His name echoes through lyrics, creating a dissonant soundtrack that mirrors the disturbed psyche of this infamous figure. As we bring this episode to a close, the tale of Ed Gein is one that continues to send shivers down our spines. Not just a true crime story, but a haunting presence in the fabric of our popular culture. As we peel back the layers of Ed's life, we find a complex web of influences. A stifling upbringing, an obsessive and domineering mother, and the isolation of rural Wisconsin. These elements converge to shape the mind of a man whose actions would leave their mark on history. Ed's early life was marred by tragedy and dysfunction. The poisonous mix of religious fervor, family strife, and personal isolation set the stage for a descent into madness. As we explored the roots of his darkness, we glimpsed the twisted psychology that would lead to grave robbing, necrophilia, and ultimately murder. The horrors didn't end with Ed's capture. His legacy has echoed throughout the years, influencing literature, film, and music. From the pages of Psycho to the chilling scenes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ed's story has continued to grip the imagination of creators seeking to explore the darkest corners of our human psyche. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. If you've enjoyed it, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a case to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach out to us on social media, on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod, or Facebook at Historical True Crime Podcast. You can also send us an email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.